All right, before we begin, I thought I'd just give a little bit of a backstory to what you're about to listen to. Uh, a friend of mine heard that I was writing a, a fairly extended essay on the doctrine of hell, and he asked me to deliver a seminar on the topic at his church. Um, what you're about to hear is that seminar. Uh, it has a Q&A at the end. Uh, most of the sound quality is decent, but you might want to know that there's uh, PowerPoint slides and um, some more visual content uh, on my YouTube channel if you're interested. But I hope you enjoy listening in as I present the various views of hell held within Christendom and do my best to remain as neutral as I can. Uh, I hope it's interesting. Uh, it was about a year ago now, uh, now that we're 2021. Um, Actually, it might have been going on for two years, I suppose, uh, when I first did this. So do let me know what you think. Uh, feel free to share it if it's helpful. And if you're interested in a conversation, do get in touch. Right, without any further comment, I'll let you listen to the seminar. Enjoy. So the purpose of tonight is not to preach to you one view, uh, though I have a little bit of a, a caveat to that. I have studied hell for probably about over three years, and part of that is because hell is intertwined with so many other doctrines, you might not quite realize that it is so connected. Um, but also, a friend of mine challenged me, uh, in my understanding, and, and I have come to read a lot about it. Uh, I think it's, it is important to understand why it's an important doctrine. Um, so my view, the little caveat that you can't really, you can see underneath there, is that my perspective and how I've come to understand what hell is will come through tonight. I'm not meaning for you to come with, away with my opinion. I will do my best to be as neutral and show you the views uh, as, as fairly and as the strength of those views as fairly as possible. But I have come to one conclusion, which I won't tell you until the end, so I'll try not to, to lead you there. Uh, so it's a broad view of scripture, so if you've done a Bible overview, this is kind of going to be Genesis to Revelation, there's a lot of content going through the Bible, but it's picking up one thrand, if you think, uh, thr- strand, thrand. If you think of um, the Bible as a tapestry, there's multiple themes running through it, and what we're going to be looking is one specific th- uh, theme that runs through uh, and that is, what does God's judgment look like? Now, you might be thinking, well, what does, I want to know what hell looks like. And I think if you go into the Bible going, what does hell look like? We're going to unintentionally bring tradition and culture into the text, looking for something we think we should be finding, and missing scripture that is actually more clearer than we might realize. And so, The whole idea of this evening is to let Scripture speak. I'll be using biblical language, biblical references. You'll notice the handout is pretty much all Bible references. Um, And so I think we need to be really, really careful that we aren't bringing the culture and uh, you'll all inadvertently be thinking Dante's Inferno when you hear the word hell. Dante has a lot 
of influence in our culture around hell. Uh, he does. And we need to work through what is Dante, <laughs> what is media, and what is the Bible, and figure out what does God's judgment look like. And that's the important question tonight. And we will also be looking at what, the, what that means in terms of good news. The gospel is good news. And so God's judgment, or the outcome of him bringing the end of evil and sin, that, that judgment is good. That judgment is going to be good because, well, we'll see. We'll reference those scriptures in a bit. And so that's, that's the main aim. What does God's judgment look like? Now, as I said, it is an important doctrine. Uh, I've had some really interesting conversations around it. Uh, I'll probably go into those a little bit more in the Q&A. But if you start to question hell or the traditional understanding of hell, oftentimes you'll, people will go, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't question this doctrine. It's seen as core. But I've had lots of interesting conversations with people within church leadership, and I'll go, so what, what do you make of this view of hell? And they will say, well, I haven't really studied it. And I haven't really dug into that. And a lot of people are either afraid of what they might find about God, and therefore just, I'd rather just deal with Jesus, his love, and uh, his rescue in the world, and giving us eternal life. But I don't want to deal with the, the bit in John 3.16 that says there's perish in there. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to figure out what that means. And so hell is that doctrine we don't touch, but we know is important. And therefore, I'll let it, someone else like this weirdo at the front talk about it and study it and, and let me know what, it, what it's about. So the whole aim is that we speak truth about who God is, that he is a judge, that he is a just judge, he is a merciful judge. How does this all work out when it comes to hell? So it's an important doctrine. It is connected also to the hope that we have, the day of the Lord, and you'll, if you recognize that phrase, the day of the Lord, that is seen throughout the Bible, and it's connected with that. And also, it is important to focus on it because so much is assumed about it. There is an important apologetic. If you're not used to Christian lingo, an apologetic doesn't mean an apology, like I'm saying sorry, but a defense of this doctrine. And it's more and more becoming popular question against Christianity. Why could a, God, a loving God send someone to hell. And generally when someone's asking that question, they have a specific picture in mind about hell. And sometimes as Christians have the wrong picture about hell, trying to defend a God sending people to this incorrect picture of hell, while this other person's also got an incorrect picture of hell, and it all becomes a bit of a mess when we're talking about hell. So tonight is to unpick that, to figure out how this fits in with a loving God. And also, and why I gave that title, it's a little bit of... Uh, Sorry, I can't go back with this remote, Tim, if you can go back one. Um, it brings clarity to our eschatology. I'm not sure if you know that word. I, I'm trying to figure out where we're at. Eschatology just means the thoughts of the end, the end times, the study of the end. Uh, and so basically, if you're looking through Revelation, you're coming to eschatology. You are figuring out what is happening at the end of time. And our eschatology as Christians is hope. We are hopeful about our eschatology. We are hopeful that there is going to be God reconciling all things to him and making new his creation. And if you trust in Christ, you will have life in this new creation. And that is the good news. And that also comes in with hell. And so tonight's outline, we're going to talk about three views of hell. We're going to talk about the language of hell. We're going to talk about the Old Testament. We're going to talk about Jesus, and then we're going to talk about the New Testament. 
And I'm going to try and do that fairly quickly. I might have to skip some bits because there is a lot here that I think you might be surprised how much there is about this topic within the Bible. Uh, I was when I started digging, and I still feel like I'm only scratching the surface. This evening is really only scratching the surface, and I hope that from this evening you figure out what you're looking for and how you can then unpack your view, which view is the biblical view tonight. So let's go straight into the three views. You first off got universalism or universal reconciliation. Now it's the view that all will be saved in the end. All will be saved in the end. There has been an evangelical rebirth in this view. And what I mean by evangelical is it's people who are trying to take the word of God seriously, are trying to study it deeply, and trying to wrestle with that question, how can a loving God send people to hell? And so they would say that, well, let's focus on these verses. Now, I'm going to use technical language, because I think, as I used to be a teacher, that is helpful, but I'm going to try and define the words as we go along. Okay, so if I don't, if I say a word, that you just stick your hand up, let me know, and we'll try and figure out what it is. So, I can't even say this one. Apocatastasis is the reconciliation of all things. And so, a universalist would focus on the all that are reconciled with God. And they will really emphasize that alongside God's love. These aren't bad things. These are really good things. We want the world to be reconciled. We want all things to come to know uh, Christ. And we see that in various scriptures about God not wanting anyone to perish, but they would come to the knowledge of him. And so we've got these emphases there. So hell is restorative. It's not that... Don't worry about taking pictures of slides. I've got a handout at the end. I just didn't want to give away all my key information before. So if if you're really worried about taking loads of notes, don't worry if I go too fast, you will be given this presentation uh, in notes. Um, Hell is restorative. So what's really interesting is if you are arguing, and um, Christians argue, I'm going (laughs) to put that out there if you're not a Christian, we have these internal debates, which is what this is. If basically Christians believe in hell, we try and figure out what scripture says about hell, but we have a debate about what that looks like. What some people do is say, well, universalists don't believe in hell at all which some, I will put it out there, some don't. But if they are evangelical, if they trust in the Bible and they're wrestling with Scripture, they love Jesus, they think the cross is important, it is the cross that saves all, saying that they don't believe hell is just what we call burning a straw man down. It's not their argument. It it isn't what they uh, present as the argument from Scripture. So just to be aware, that is on the cards and there's a couple books there. So evangelical proponents, if if you hear about them, Robin Parry, George MacDonald, and Thomas Talbot. Now, I've read Thomas Talbot's. I I have to say, I'm I'm not convinced by these arguments. I'm not, just because they're there and they're evangelical, I don't mean to promote them as necessarily beneficial, but they are there and there are people wrestling with Scripture as to how that works out. Conditional immortality. Uh, This is only the redeemed will live after judgment. So your immortality is conditional to Christ. So, if you believe in Christ, you will gain immortality, eternal life. If you aren't in Christ, you will die finished. That's it. There will be no experience after God's judgment has been carried out. Uh, And we will look into this a little bit more. So, it's also known as annihilationism. Now, the reason I'm not calling it annihilationism is annihilationism comes with a lot of baggage. It's linked with 
cults and various other things. And so oftentimes, if someone says they believe this, Christians will kind of go, you're, you're believing a cult, a heresy. And actually, there is a lot of evidence for this view that I would say, actually, this is a stronger view than universalism. It's a lot of data that points in this direction. And people like John Stott, I'm going to skip through you. John Stott, Edward Fudge, uh, this is a great name, Preston Sprinkle is a great name. Now, Preston Sprinkle's an interesting guy. I, I, I definitely write his name down because he and Francis Chan, if you've heard of him, wrote a book called A Raising Hell in response to Rob Bell's Love Wins. Love Wins is potentially universalistic, even though Rob Bell was trying to argue that it wasn't, but it really lent in that direction. Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle wrote a book together called A Raising Hell, and that presented the view we'll see in a moment, which is more the traditional view. And now Preston Sprinkle, over the course of his study for that book, and then more study, more study, he's now in this camp. He has taken the word of God seriously, he has wrestled with it, and he's come to this view. Uh, And so we will look more into that as we go. And I would argue that this view should be taken seriously, if for no other reason than John Stott lent towards it as well. And then you've got eternal conscious torment, which is also known as traditionalism because it's probably the view that you grew up with if you are in Britain. Uh, Those not in the book of life will face ongoing torment for eternity. They will experience, they will feel pain. We'll look at the verses they take for this, so there will be scripture to back this up. I need to keep moving. But it's ongoing conscious torment for eternity. Uh, The emphasis that they have is on the New Testament. They focus on the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin and how sin impacts uh, that relationship. And then hell is ongoing conscious torment for, while well, well, all Christians are in new creation, this is ongoing uh, somewhere. And the views differ on this. So I've actually, I don't know, I'm sorry if that's too small. Um, as I said, I will give these slides out at the end. So torment is separation. Now this is more and more the popular view of eternal conscious torment. It's that God will confine evil sinners and everything negative. <laughs> he will confine it in what we call hell. And so C.S. Lewis wrote this whole book, The Great Divorce, and that's very much this sort of view that you just gradually become smaller and smaller and smaller the more you uh, sin, the more you go against God, you eventually basically are this tiny, become part of this tiny realm called hell, which is basically not quite non-existent, but it's, you've put yourself there, you're away from God, and you've just, it's, a, it's basically a cycle of corruption. You've become a ruined human. Uh, the Bible Project also, I don't know if you've come across that. Now, I love the Bible Project. They are amazing on YouTube. Check them out. Be careful a little bit with them. Don't treat them like they're your pastor. But they have some amazing things that just really help you dig deep into Scripture. And uh, on this one, they take the C.S. Lewis view as well. So although they don't talk about hell that much. um, And also Tim Keller takes this view as well. Now there's also torment as physical pain, terror. uh, And this is the sort of Jonathan Edwards dangling over a fiery pit. Um, the, probably the view that you've heard about and grew up with is that this is going to be ongoing in pain and terror. And this is, uh, John Piper does subscribe to this, Robert Peterson. Now, the reason I put Robert Peterson in there 
is because he's written a book with Edward Fudge, who you'll recognize potentially from the last slide, called Two Views of Hell. And they do a bit of back and forth. And that's a really good way of figuring out which one you find to be more biblical. And that's the question, which is more biblical? And that's, that's why we're here tonight. I'm trying my best to be neutral. I, I will emphasize that. Um, but those who are evangelical would all say their view is biblical. So we, we need to wrestle with Scripture. We need to work our way through it. We need to figure out what does it really say. And ultimately, the view you land on as a Christian, I want to put it plainly, won't affect your salvation tonight, ever. Wherever you land on this will only impact potentially your view of who God is, how you respond to a non-Christian asking this question, but it will not impact the fact that Christ is your Savior and he will give you eternal life. Okay, so everything else from here on out is an internal debate amongst Christians. If you're not a Christian tonight, I hope you find it helpful. But we really want to wrestle with Scripture, and that's why that debate happens, is because we love the Bible, and we want to see what it says about God and his judgment. So, why are there so many different views? Well, part of it is that we aren't reading the Bible in original languages. We've got Hebrew, we've got Aramaic, and we've got Greek, and they are pretty much all dead, non-existent languages. And so we're trying to translate them. Now, first translations were from Latin, so they're already a step removed from original translations. Now, we are very grateful for the people that have come before us and translated into English and have changed the landscape of our country for the better. But King James Version decided to translate four different words as hell. We've got Sheol in the Old Testament. We will unpack these words as we go. Hades in the New, but also the two are connected because, so the Septuagint, often referenced as LXX, is the Greek, the oldest Greek translation we have of the Old Testament. And so when they translated the Hebrew and Amoric into Greek, they used Hades as the translation of Sheol. So the two are are fairly connected. And then we've got Gehenna, which you might recognize, you might not recognize. But there are only 12 uses in the entire New Testament of the direct language of Gehenna. Jesus used 11 of them. James used the other one. Okay, so that's quite an important word. And then there's Tartarus. If you know your Greek mythology, Tartarus is a sort of underworld place, and it's only used once in the entire Bible, just once. So it's a really tough word to figure out what Peter meant. He's the guy that used it in Second Peter. We will potentially have time to flesh these out. I'm going to have to move a little bit faster. So we're not even in the Bible yet, so you can see that we're already scratching the surface, and this is potentially bigger than we might have realized. So those four words come up, and we're going to look about the Old Testament first. Now, in Erasing Health with Francis Chan and Preston Spinkle, What's really interesting, they make the comment that actually the Bible is silent when it comes to hell. That's actually a phrase that they use in their book. And Preston Sprinkle, the reason he's changed his views is because he's actually now studied the Old Testament and come to a different perspective. A lot of people think the Old Testament is silent about hell because they're going in with a question, I know what hell looks like, I'm going to go into the Old Testament and find it. And the problem is, it's not in there. 
The concept of Sheol we'll look at in a moment, and we need to start right at the beginning. So uh, well, let's go right back to Genesis. So in the beginning, Genesis 1 to 3, now I would recommend you have your Bible open, but it's going to be, going to be, be testing you to flick through these passages fairly quickly. So I have got the references there, and the PowerPoint's coming later. The rebellion happens against God, and there's a curse for eating the fruit, which was, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is the curse. You shall surely die. Now, sometimes we interpret this as a form of spiritual death because they ate the fruit, and what happened? Did did they die? No, they got kicked out. They got expelled from the garden. So there's something about language here that we need to unpack. And actually, when that happens we need to look throughout the Bible and see if that phrase happens again. And it does. You shall surely die happens again. It happens in Jeremiah 26, 8 to 11. And in that passage, you shall surely die, is a sentence that's then carried out later. So it's not like you bite the fruit and you die. It's you bite the fruit, you're sentenced to die. And so we can get in a little bit of a confusion about whether some death is spiritual, death is physical, but we don't, the Bible doesn't make that qualification. You'll never see the Bible put spiritual or physical next to the word death. It only uses the word death. Okay. So as we move through this, there is a definition of death in Genesis. For dust you are. Thus you will return. And it's also repeated in Ecclesiastes. So you will return to dust. And that's really important to understand that because there is a lot of culture and tradition wrapped up around spiritual and physical death that we end up putting into future discussion. Now the end of life and importantly the rebellion against God is important as well because there's a, an important tree that is in there, the tree of life. And the tree of life is what they are cut off from. And it's the tree of life or access to it, whether that's a symbol, a real tree, whatever it is, it turns up again in Revelation. The tree of life is the access that gives immortality. And when they are cut off from the tree of life, they will be mortal. They will not have access to that which gives them life. And so there is a cut off from the garden and... We see soon after Genesis 3, we have murder, we have sin, we have awful things happening because death has entered the world. So that is the beginning. That is the Old Testament. So what does, so humanity is sentenced to die. I've said all that. I'm going to keep moving forward. Uh, So we've removed access to the tree of life. Right, where are we? We are up to Sheol and Hades. Now, as I said, Hades and Sheol are the same thing. I will use them interchangeably because that seems to be the case in the Bible. Now, there are some really important things to say about Sheol, which I will float through. But all those references, I would highly recommend you do a study on the word Sheol. And to do that, don't use the King James because it will translate them all hell. So... Use ESV, uh, NIV is pretty good at doing this translation correctly. There's also a Bible translation called CSB, which uh, I've started to find really helpful because on the Version app, it has references to every single phrase throughout the Bible really easily accessible. So there's a few things out there that are really helpful for doing studies like this. Also, just to put it out there, resources, netbible.org 
is amazing because it's free and you can select words, see the Greek, see the Hebrew, see the Aramaic, do a word study, and it's all free. It's amazing. Uh, there's a few of them out there now. So, Sheol, what is it? Sheol is seen as the same as hell in King James Version, but oftentimes if you talk to someone who will only read the King James Version, they will say that hell is a separation from God. And then we go into Psalm 139, and it says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, (laughs) if you're King James Version, or Sheol, if you're reading what the word is, uh, God is there. So those who define death as separation will rather uh, highlight Psalms, which do have an emphasis on being cut off from God. And there are Psalms in there which say people are cut off from God in Sheol. And uh, you can read that in Psalms 6.5. More confusingly, it might be a place with no memory of God in uh, Psalms 6.5. And... They may or may not have a body, depending on where in the Bible you read. So Isaiah 14.9 calls, calls the forms that rise up to meet Babylon, it calls them the shades. So that doesn't sound like a physical body, but then later on in Luke 16, which we'll touch on a little bit later, which is in Hades as well, the rich man has a body because he's in torment. So we're not quite sure what's going on there. It's a little bit uh, interesting. And uh, one of the biggest issues for those who say Sheol is the same as hell is that both the righteous and the wicked can go to Sheol. Jacob says he will go to Sheol in sorrow in Genesis 37 when he hears of Joseph's apparent demise. He said, I'll go down to Sheol and sorrow, and I, I don't think many people would argue that Jacob was not righteous. Death is very much linked to Sheol. Sheol is often called the grave, the pit. Uh, it's also interpreted in that way sometimes when the word Sheol is used. Uh, very much the image of burial and a place of no return. There's not much in the way of hope when it comes to Sheol. Um, and so we, we keep going through, we, we hear all these things about Sheol, and, and so that might end up being more confusing than you want it to be, but actually the Sheol, uh, Sheol is, is, the whole Old Testament is progressive revelation. Abraham wasn't a Christian, <laughs> he was a pagan who suddenly interacted with a living God, and God had to deal with him, and work him through, reveal himself to him, reveal laws then to a nation that wasn't a nation before, and so all this stuff is progressive, and so the idea of what happens after death is progressive. And so when we look in the Old Testament going, I need to see this hell that we've developed, and you don't find it, don't panic, it's okay, it's just how the Bible works. But it's also offering, notice how I reference the Psalms, and I've referenced people talking, I will go down into Sheol in sorrow. This is very figurative, it's very poetic, it's not necessarily meant to be a hard doctrine that we cling everything onto, but it's a perspective that people go there and there's no memory of them. It's people trying to deal with death and trying to figure out what happens to us when we die. And so some really careful things. Why I don't think Sheol is the thing to go to when you're looking for hell. 
There are some interesting passages around Sheol, and I really recommend that you read them. But we need to be accurate about our teaching about the afterlife. We have a great hope, an amazing hope. The gospel is hope when it comes to death. It's amazing hope. But we need to be accurate. And if we start proclaiming that verses about Sheol, which are a little bit murky at best, and say that's hell, and then someone goes and reads something in Revelation and goes, but the two are completely different, we need to realize that the ideas of these two things are completely separate. And Sheol, the reason I say that, Sheol was thought to be under the ground. And then if we're talking about after judgment, is then that's still going to be under the ground. So there's some really, really important things to think through when we're talking about death, when we're talking about uh, hell, this isn't the best place to go to. So we also need to be aware that the idea of Sheol is that it's current, in existence, now. Well, if, if Jacob was saying, I'm going to go to Sheol, Joseph's dead, Jacob's going to go to him. That, so that means while well, Jacob's alive, Joseph's in Sheol. So it's this idea of currently happening, whereas the idea and concept of hell as we know it is after judgment. Now, just to, if, if you are new to this whole language, I just want to make it clear. The Christian Orthodox view of death is we die, and there's two views, depending on how you view how the body is. One is that we end up in a holding place called Sheol, or the intermediate state. One is that Christians will go to heaven because Christ has defeated death through his cross. Some people don't believe that happens until later. So just to put that out there, just to, I don't want to, I probably shouldn't have done that because that will probably confuse you. That's not important to tonight. So the orthodox view is we die, Christians will be in heaven, those not with Christ will be in Sheol, and then there's a resurrection we all hope for this resurrection where we, and we'll look at a verse that talks about this, we will be rise again, we will come face to face with God, there will be judgment, and then we'll see some verses that talk about this, there will be some to life, some to whatever we're talking about tonight. And it's that whatever we're talking about tonight that is up for discussion. The rest of it, there's quite a few views in there that are just sidetracked, so we're going to focus on that bit. So that's that's what we're talking about. And that bit at the end isn't the same as whatever that state is when we die. Okay, so that's what Sheol is and what Hades is. So we're going to keep moving forward. Now, just to be clear here, Sheol, death, and sin are all intertwined. They're all seen as a negative. They're all seen as not very much hope. Uh, They're against God's design. There's something that is going to be ultimately dealt with in the end. What does that dealing with look like? Just going to grab a drink. I'm going to try and speed up. Now, I'm going to cover these fairly quickly just because there's a lot more to this. So, Genesis 7 is Noah's flood. Hopefully, we all have an idea of what Noah's flood looked like a lot of death. Uh, Genesis 19, again, Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed completely. That's a bit of an artist's rendering of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. Completely destroyed. The language around Sodom and Gomorrah, the reason I reference this is it's important. Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, in verse 28 of chapter 19, he looked down and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Now just to be clear here, there was a lot of time, patience, on God's part, before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, as was the case for uh, the flood, 
the whole thought process and understanding from a Christian perspective is that there was a lot of evil that there was just no coming back from and it left, there was no choice but for destruction. Okay, and we're going to see that come through uh, a little bit as well. But I'd really suggest that you do dig into that question of why does God destroy, but I think that will come through this evening as well. We'll keep moving. Exodus 33, there's a really interesting passage in Exodus 33 where God says, I will not go with you, you are stubborn people, if I went with you, I will consume you. There's something about God that destroys things that aren't perfect. And if he bring, and we see that throughout over and over and over again, the presence of God is something to be fearful of because we might be consumed. People fall flat on their faces before God. People are afraid of him because he terrifies us, but it's a good terrifying us. It's that phrase in C.S. Lewis everyone loves. He is not safe, but he is good. And so we have a reverence for him, and we see that in the way God interacts with the Israelites. And we see it in Numbers 16, when Korah rebels. And uh, it's quite a, a crazy story. they got loads of people basically being swallowed up, and they went to Sheol alive, uh, and the earth closed over them. And then fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. So I'm really emphasizing the language here. Consume fire, destruction, uh, death is all part of coming up against a holy God. Okay, God is holy. These men rebelled. There's death as a consequence. We see that in Genesis. We see it in Exodus. We see it in Numbers. Now, there's one psalm I'm really going to emphasize. Oh, sorry, I skipped ahead. Uh, where do I go? My slide's in a slightly... Yeah, that is the right one. I, skipped, I think I've skipped one. Uh, so we've got Isaiah 34. Oh, no, it's just a picture threw me off. No, we're all good. We're all good. We'll carry on. Psalm 37, is that right where we're on the notes? Yes, good. Okay, we're all there. Psalm 37, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's really long, but it's really interesting. The comparisons of uh, the righteous and the wicked. And I highly recommend you read the whole thing, but I'm only going to read verses 18 to 20. And this is basically a theme throughout the whole structure of the psalm. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. But the wicked will perish Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed. They will go up in smoke. We could have actually started with Psalms 1, where it says, The way of the wicked will be like chaff, blown away by the wind, because they will not stand in judgment, but their way leads to judgment. Psalms over and over and over again compares life in righteousness, death without God's intervention. Those are the comparisons. Judgment blows them away like chaff on the wind. So I'm going to focus on some specific verses as well because the Old Testament, getting your head around the Old Testament helps you so much with the New. Jesus quotes over and over and over and over again the Old Testament. Now some of the Old Testament, I'll grant, is quite long and tedious because it's numbers and things that we just don't get our heads around. But it is worth digging into the treasure that is the Old Testament. 
It's amazing. And we see things like this. Isaiah 34 talks about the destruction of Edom. Now, Edom was thought not to exist. People argued about its, uh, the truthfulness of the Bible because of it. And this last month, Edom was found. And I'm going to read this passage. Uh, the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land shall become burning, burning pitch, Night and day it shall not be quenched. That's a key phrase. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. And the reason that's a key phrase is if you can see the picture, the smoke is not going up forever and ever. It's not still on fire. And that's Edom. So I'm going to put it out there that that phrase means total destruction at this point in time. And we'll look into why I think that's a good interpretation of that phrase, the smoke shall go up forever, later on. Uh, Right, we need to keep going. So, Edom's destruction is important. Clock that as a really key phrase. And then we get to Isaiah. Isaiah also, uh, sorry, further on in Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 24, the end of the book We see in Isaiah 65 an amazing vision of what God's holy mountain will look like. We see an amazing vision of the end of death, the end of pain, the end of mourning. And that's a theme throughout. You can see it in Isaiah 25 as well. And then we get to Isaiah 66 and we get this. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury, his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter the judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me says the Lord so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath all flesh shall come to worship before me declares the Lord and then this verse verse 24 and they the righteous that's who that they is if we go back to the context shall go out and look on the dead bodies or some will phrase it corpses if you look around translations, of the men who have rebelled against me. Me is God. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Hands up if you've heard that language before. Their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched. Have you heard that language before? A few of you? It's repeated again. Does anyone know the reference where it's repeated? The, the worms in the... Jesus quotes this passage. Mark 9. We're going to look at that in a minute. It's really important. Jesus references this, uh, or Mark references it to explain Jesus' teaching, which we'll, we'll look at how that works. So there's really key phrases here. Worm that never dies, unquenchable fire, but also note there's a corpse. <laughs> there's corpses in view. And, uh, yeah, abhorrence is also a good a word to clock uh, and make note of as well. So these, these are key words that I'm trying to pull out. Um, we will explain that in a minute, but what is really important, I said there's, there's a phrase here, worm shall not die. Shall not die is a phrase you then need to look through the Bible to see what is meant by that phrase. And fortunately, it's used again. Genesis 42:20. Joseph tells his brother brothers to bring their youngest brothers to him, and they shall not die. So Joseph doesn't have the power to grant immortality to his brothers. He's not saying they will never die. He's not saying that 
they will live on in immortality just for obeying him, though he was powerful at the time in Egypt. But he's saying they will not die as part of this process, as part of, uh, in response to their reaction to, to Joseph. So one thing that's really important here, there's a view of hell, the eternal conscious torment kind, that uses the phrases, worms never die, to say that there's eternal torment in hell. Now, I'm just going to say it's a bit of a leap to go from worms to humans. But I have heard people argue that the use of their worm will never die means that each person gets a personal worm in hell. Now, this, we're talking about leaps, but this is actually stuff that is online on YouTube and people think this is how to read the Bible. But immortal worms, if that is the case of what they're saying in the Bible, doesn't mean that the corpse is alive. Okay, the corpse is dead. I'm just going to put that out there in case um, we've got any concern about that. And so worms are connected with dead bodies. I'm sure we're, we're all fairly okay with that. And they eat the flesh of dead bodies. The, the bodies do not need to be alive. That makes no sense. And actually worms wouldn't eat living flesh. So that they don't do that. That's not how worms work. So the, the, what I'm trying to point to is that Isaiah knew what worms did to bodies and what those bodies looked like. Okay, and, and so he's not thinking they're animated. Now, unquenchable is an interesting one as well. Again, it's a word that we've made to be immortal, unquenchable fire. We have this picture of never-ending fire. Well, actually, an unquenchable fire is more like a forest fire in my mind. We can't put it out with water, but it will go out eventually. It causes irreversible damage and destruction, but it will go out eventually when it runs out of fuel. And so that's an unquenchable fire, is that no one can put it out until it runs out, or until it is stopped by God. Uh, and so we put things from our culture into the text that the text isn't necessarily saying. Okay, so I just want to put, worms and fire don't necessarily mean that the person is still experiencing. At least not from Isaiah 66. Okay, so we... Crack on then. Uh, Jeremiah seven nineteen. This is really important as well. I'm also, I'm, it's all important. It's the Bible. Uh, similar language of judgment, which is uh, fire. But what's interesting about Gehenna? Uh, Gehenna is not actually used in Jeremiah. But the, it's Hebrew. They use the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which when the Hebrew of that word is translated to Greek, they use Gehinnom, I think, or Jehinnom. I'm not sure about the pronunciation. I rely on other Greek scholars to tell me uh, about that. But Gehinnom, and then it's, it's sort of transliterated, it's the, the pronounced Gehenna. And so Gehenna links to this valley, which you see is lovely. So hell is lovely at this time of year as a park. This is Gehenna. And we're going to look at what that looks like. The reason I use that as hell is because it's translated as hell in the New Testament. So, Valley of Hinnom is Gehenna. Gehenna is Valley of Hinnom. And Jeremiah uses the valley as a picture of God's judgment. Because in this valley, the valley is referenced throughout the Old Testament. It's where the Israelites started to sacrifice children to a pagan god named Molech. And there's these altars called Topheths. I think I've got the spelling up there. Uh, it will come up eventually. Uh, I think Topheths are basically altars of fire. 
And it's what they would use to sacrifice children. And we see in Chronicles that King Josiah destroys and desecrates these altars to clean the valley and bring it back into God's righteousness. Uh, And so this place is just linked to death, left, right, and center. But I want to just nip an idea that comes across when talking about hell over and over and over again, that Gehenna was some form of garbage dump. There is no evidence up to 1200 AD, that's a little bit past Jesus' time, that it ever was used as a garbage dump. It has lots of connection with death, it has lots of connection with slaughter, but it doesn't have any connection to garbage and never-ending flames on that garbage. And I don't, Has anyone heard that before? Yeah. There's, unless you've found some evidence, I can't find any from before 1200 AD, and that's linked to a Jewish rabbi, um, I can't remember the name of. So it's, it's one of these things that's like perpetuated through Christianity, unfortunately, because it fits with the already preconceived idea of what hell is. And we go, oh, that's a, that's a great story. I'm going to use that because it gives me an image of something I think to be biblical. And actually, there's enough images in Jeremiah to deal with. I mean, we're dealing with some pretty crazy stuff here. We're dealing with uh, Jeremiah calling it the Valley of Slaughter, Topheths, which... Uh, kids are killed on we're dealing with a god who's dealing with evil and he will just completely demolish all of it in this valley and the greatest shame for any middle eastern man or woman is to be killed and left unburied and left to the worms and to the birds it's most it's i can't really put it into words for us because we don't really deal with death we're quite happy to have our bodies chucked in a crematorium and there we go it, we can't, Middle Eastern people wouldn't do that. They can't imagine anything worse than being left unburied. And so the motivation here to, I don't want God to do that to me. My legacy is my family and my line, and that is so important to me. And if I died like that, it would bring the greatest shame to my family and my line. And it's a whole way of thinking that we just don't have in the West. And so this picture of Gehenna is slaughter and dead bodies and that is pretty serious. But we're getting to the good news, I promise. Daniel 12, too, is one of the only hints of resurrection in the whole Old Testament. And what a guy named Chris Date, uh, again, I'd recommend here, he's an author of Consuming Passion. He edits, um, he's edited a book called Rethinking Hell, manages Rethinking Hell Ministries. And just to put it out there, he's an evangelical who believes in conditional immortality. He points out in his debates with uh, people who have different views that the Hebrew word for contempt, if you read Daniel 12 too, if you are there, I don't think I'll put it on the screen. But there's a resurrection to life for the righteous, to shame and everlasting contempt. That place of everlasting is really important because some people inadvertently put everlasting before shame and contempt. And it's really important to get the order right. Some people do it seemingly on purpose to get their view of hell across, but the shame doesn't have everlasting next to it because shame is felt by the person undergoing the punishment. The everlasting contempt, or the same word as abhorrence from Isaiah 66, there's a connection there, Abhorrence and contempt are felt by those looking on. So just it's a really important distinction there. The shame is felt by those who are going into destruction. We've got the everlasting contempt is felt by the righteous looking on. 
And, and so that is a really important distinction. Uh, if you need to know why, we can go into Q&A for that one. And finally, in the Old Testament, there's a lot here, as I said. I've, I've barely scratched the surface of the Old Testament. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and we have this uh, more judgment. Oh, whoops. Uh, Tim, can you knock me back one? Um, Malachi 4.3. The day will be burning like an oven or furnace. That's a similar language to Genesis 19. Uh, Solomon and Gomorrah was destroyed. They saw the fire like a furnace. Arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The righteous, though, will clearly rise in a manner that sounds like new life. And it is the wicked that are ashes under the feet of the righteous. So where is the good news in that? That's quite a lot of death. Um, Not much in the way of new life and hope that we might be uh, wanting. But there is hope in there. There is great hope in there. And, and this is where we have to sort of figure out what is happening in the, in the end times. If we're going to deal with the Old Testament well, we have to work through some pretty tough language, especially tough coming from a modern Western mindset. Potentially not so tough if you're coming from an ancient Middle Eastern mindset where death was on your doorstep, quite literally. So we need to have that in mind. But Isaiah has this thing in mind in one of my favorite passages, Isaiah 25, 6-9, there will be no more death, no more pain, no more uh, mourning. The great shroud that has covered all nations will be destroyed. Death will be destroyed. It will be no more. It's something to look forward to. So if you are feeling this evening that death is on your doorstep or you are dealing with situations that involve death, there is hope that death will be no more and we look forward to that hope. That is the Christian hope. It is the only hope that gives us, uh, going through that, any hope at all because death is only momentary and we look forward to when it will ultimately be no more. Daniel 12.2, resurrection. We have a resurrection that we will not Stay in Sheol. If that's where we end up when we die, we will not stay there. God will bring us out and we will resurrect and we will come to face to face with our God. And given all the other language, that should fill us with a bit of fear trembling. Our God is a righteous judge where there will be an ultimate end if we are not in Christ. And so Hosea is great because he is connected to the New Testament as well. And he says, O death, where is your sting? O Sheol, where, uh, have I got the wrong, wrong way around? Oh, where, where, is, where is your victory? No, yeah, I've got it all muddled up in my head. I've lost my place. That's potentially why. Um, but basically, it's quoted in 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And, but Hosea references Sheol. And that's why Sheol is intertwined with death. So, in summary of the Old Testament, I'm going to have to really go fast through Jesus' teaching at this rate. The Old Testament belief was that you die, you go to Sheol, and that's both for the righteous and wicked. Uh, Judgment leads to the death of the wicked. And shame for the wicked. The the worms and fire and unburied is, is shameful. Gehenna will be a valley of slaughter. The hope of an ultimate triumph over death and the wicked is our hope. That's where the good news is. And actually, I don't know about you, but I have a great hope that one day evil and sin, even in myself, will be destroyed and be no more. The issue God has is that he wants no one to perish, but come to the knowledge of him. And how is he going to deal with me when I'm full of sin. Well, he's given us a way out through 
Christ. And so that is, that is the hope, that is the Christian hope, that he's given us a way out, and that's where we end up into Jesus' teaching. I'm going to give you 30 seconds, just if you've got any questions, write them down now so you don't forget, because we're going to go through Jesus' teaching very quickly. 30 seconds, we'll have a drink. There's an interesting claim that Jesus spoke more about hell than anything else, anyone else. That's potentially true, but uh, there's also a claim that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did he- on heaven. No, no, he didn't. Uh, you can re- go through Matthew, there's far more emphasis on the kingdom of heaven uh, than on hell. Um, there is a bit about judgment. It's quite a lot about judgment, and his parables touch on judgment quite a lot. We, again, are only scratching the surface. So we're going to go straight into Mark 9. I know that's out of order from the New Testament, but Mark 9, the reason I do that, it's the only reference in Mark to Gehenna. And what's interesting about this, Mark is also to an audience that's not necessarily Jewish or not necessarily located near Jerusalem. So Mark has to clarify what Gehenna is to his audience. He doesn't just say, it's Gehenna, you all know what it, it doesn't, so in Matthew we see Gehenna just thrown there and left. The audience knows what Gehenna is. Now unfortunately for us, we don't know what Gehenna is, generally speaking. We need it explained and that's why we're here tonight. But it's, we need to be really careful that we don't fill the silences in the Bible with our own culture and predetermined ideas and then say that's what Jesus meant and that's where what we call exegesis is really important where we go into the culture of the Bible and we pull out what scripture says before we then go what does it mean for our culture today okay so that's what we're trying trying to do Gehenna from the Old Testament background to the audience we need some clarification and Mark gives us that by directly quoting Isaiah 66 and he does it depending on the scripts, <laughs> the, the manu- manuscripts that uh, you have. You might have done that three times, two times. There's, if you have NIV, there's a little footnote note probably there about how many times he says, the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched. That is a direct quote to Isaiah. People go to Isaiah. And the danger that we have in Western churches is we proof text. We pull one verse out and goes because we have the verse of the day, and we say, that applies to my life today. And it's ripped from all context, and we make it mean what it, we think it should mean. That is the danger of reading the Bible like that. What the Jews would do, if someone made a direct reference to Scripture, they would go to the whole passage and go, right, that's, that's the whole reference there, and that's what was meant. And so when Jesus... Quote, what, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a quote from Psalm 22. So to get an idea of what Jesus meant on the cross, we read Psalm 22. And so that's, we don't just go, oh, that's a nice phrase. How can that apply to me? It's, it's actually, I need the whole passage. And it's really, really key. And so Mark references Isaiah 66:24, which if we go back to Isaiah 66:24, it says the corpses, the corpses are where the worms are. And that's really, really key. Okay, so Mark doesn't say anything else other than what Isaiah 66 says. But interestingly, Gehenna was from Jeremiah. 
So Mark has connected Jeremiah's definitions of what Gehenna will be, the valley of slaughter, with Isaiah 66, the valley where there's worms and unquenchable fire, and said this is what Jesus meant when he's talking about judgment and not going there. Don't lose your arm. It's better to lose your arm than to have your whole body as a corpse. That makes sense. It makes sense of what Mark is talking about. It do- I'm just going to put it out there. It might not make as much sense if we suddenly think of an animated person who's now only got one arm in fire, on fire with their personal worm. I'm just going to put it out there. Okay, so I don't think that's a picture Mark had. So, I'm trying to remain neutral, right? Matthew 3 and Luke 3. Jesus talks about, oh, we skipped through, that's Gehenna, that's the valley, it looks very nice. Uh, There we go. So, Matthew 3 and it's parallel Luke 3, we have a picture of separating wheat and chaff. If you've ever seen chaff burnt, it doesn't last very long. It is consumed. It disappears. Uh, It's like it was never there. And this is also in Matthew 13. I'm trying to speed up. Matthew 13 is interesting because it links to Malachi 4.3, where there's weeds burnt in the fire, and they will be like ash. There will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Save that for Q&A if we need to. Um, So there's some really strong passages of destruction, which we're going to... I want to pause on a little bit, because this is really important, but we're going to run out of time. Um, Right, this says in Matthew ten twenty eight, Luke twelve four to eight. Reference of Gehenna. It's the only reference to Gehenna in Luke, but it's not the only reference to judgment in Luke. So that's for another day. But it says quite clearly in the context. This is about the disciples being fearful for their lives. They, depending on which part of the Bible you're in, if it's Luke, they're, they're in fear of being crushed. In Matthew, I think it's they're about to go out, if I remember that correctly. Whatever it is, there's a threat on their lives, and they might be killed. So Jesus says, do not fear man who can destroy the body, but cannot do anything else to you, but fear him who can send you to Gehenna, where, if it's Matthew 10, 28, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. Luke seems a little bit softer. He says, cast into Gehenna. But if you have a picture of Gehenna, where the valley is slaughter, that is shameful, abhorrent, worms, you get the picture. That's where we're coming from. Then this is a place where God will destroy his enemies. He won't keep them around. And that's controversial. I'll just put it out there. I'm sorry. um, That wasn't neutral, that statement. But he he will destroy them. And there might be some argument around the definition of destruction. We can save that for the Q and A. Carrying on. Now, if you are aware of the eternal punishment, eternal torment view, then Matthew 25, 41, 46 is the most prominent Sorry, Tim, can you go back one? Uh, view where, where this might be what hell is. I'm not going to read the whole thing because we don't have time. But basically, Jesus says, depart from me, go into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Prepared for, doesn't mean that they own it. Doesn't mean they have dominion over it. Satan's angels aren't going to be pushing people into flames with pitchforks. That's not the picture in the Bible. They are, the eternal fire is always connected with destruction. 
Okay, so we'll, we'll leave that there. Eternal fire, prepared for the day of his angels. In verse 46, it says, These, those who are not righteous, will go into eternal punishment, eternal punishment, used together, but the righteous into eternal life. So the traditional view and reading of that is you see eternal life in Christ, or you have eternal punishment, which is ongoing eternally. That is the traditional view of hell. I'm going to park that there and just say, if you hold to conditional immortality, you would say the eternal punishment is death. The valley of slaughter is death. It's an ongoing death you never come back from. You aren't resurrected again from that eternal punishment. That's the conditional immortality view. The eternal conscious torment view, the traditional view, uh, is that eternal punishment is ongoing. You must experience it. And as Christians, we have to wrestle with which one might be right. But what I want you to be very careful with is you don't pull in the idea of eternal punishment from your films, your movies, your culture, and bring that into this text. We've got to wrestle with the scripture here to figure out what it's saying. So that's eternal punishment. We're going to park that. Uh, but what about Luke 16? Ah, we've got loads to talk to. I'm going to skip through this really quickly because Luke 16, believe it or not, is not about hell. That's controversial in itself. Luke 16 is about Hades. It says the rich man and Lazarus were buried and they went to Hades. The language of burial, which I saw we touched on in the Old Testament. There is, I'm going to leave it because this, if you think this is hell, there are so many big questions about reading this as hell. But there are two things it can be taken as. It can be taken literally as Hades, as a real account of something happening in Hades. That is a possible view, that it's not a parable, that it's a literal thing. There's a guy named Lazarus and a rich man, and they go to this place called Hades, and this is a picture of what theology should be like with paradise, a chasm, and uh, torment. I have a problem with that because that means there's a judgment somewhere that's happened that separated the two. That might not be a problem as you can see, there's some big questions here. That's what I'm trying to put out in front of you. So both views need time and study. If it's just a parable, that's fine. There's some fantastic teaching, even if this is just a parable, about being aware of the dangers of money. And that would make most sense of the whole chapter where Jesus is talking to Pharisees and their love of money and their neglect of the poor, sitting at their table having his sores licked by dogs. Okay, that's a picture of Lazarus. So, that's, so they need... Study And so there's some massive issues if we take this too literally. Uh, I'm just going to put them out there because I didn't put them on the notes. We have no idea why Lazarus is saved and the rich man isn't. The gospel isn't that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. That's not the gospel. So what's happened there? There seems to be a judgment based on works or position. There is a judgment before judgment. The rich man's brothers, and this is key, the rich man's brothers are still alive. He wants Lazarus to go back to his brothers so they don't end up in Hades. As I said before, the orthodox view of hell is death, resurrection, judgment, and then hell, as we understand it, is at the other side of that. This is before. Okay, so we, we've got this massive issues. Luke 16 is really, for, the reason I'm a bit passionate about it is because I've read a number of books now on this topic and the number of very awesome, amazing, godly men and women who just drop this bomb, 
Look at Luke 16. It says eternal torment in fire. And they leave it like that. Like there's no study. And so I want you to wrestle with scripture. If you come out with the eternal conscious torment view from this, fine, but at least study it and have answers to these really interesting, if you're a geek like me, an interesting theological study in this. Uh, and I think if you do that, you will find there's far more depth to it than just going Luke 16 is a verse and chapter about hell. Right, I've dropped quite a few bombshells in there. We need to keep going. Tim, remind me what time Q&A should have started? Probably about 10 minutes ago. Okay, so... Right, we'll try and speed this through. So Jesus taught eternal punishment. Okay, I will... I'll I'll skip through a couple of the references in the New Testament and hop to Revelation in a minute because that's probably where people really want to go to. So, um, just on Jesus' teaching, eternal punishment is a really key word and it is debated what that means. So I really want to emphasize that because I do want to be neutral and I don't want to press my view on you. We need to figure out what eternal punishment is. Is. And the two views that are biblical, in my opinion, are conditional immortality, where eternal punishment is a death that you don't come back from, and the other view is eternal conscious torment, which is an ongoing punishment for all eternity. So those are the two views I would hold. When you come to this as a universalist, I'm not quite sure what you hold. Um, I think they, universalists start wrestling with the word eternal itself, and they start saying it's a qualitative, so that, like... It's a quality of the next age rather than a duration of time. Now, interestingly, I think there is a case where that can be made about the word eternal, but that's not what those who hold to conditional immortality would argue in this case. Uh, Okay, so we're going to just touch on a few things. Now, just to reference some things very quickly before we go into Q&A, and if you want more focus on the verses, then, then we'll do that. So... Uh, let's, let's summarize. I'm not going to go through the slides at this moment. So Paul. Paul doesn't use the word hell. He doesn't use the word Gehenna. He doesn't use Sheol. He doesn't even use Hades, I don't think. But he does say, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says, if you, in, in that context, if you are a slave to sin, your end, in verse 21, is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. That's Romans 6. Uh, moving through that, 1 Corinthians 15, my favorite verse, talks about being a seed and coming up uh, in corruptible bodies. It quotes Hosea, says, where is your sting, where is your victory? It intertwines the sting of death is sin. So Paul says in, one, in, in Romans, he says the wages of sin is death. In Corinthians, he says the sting of death is sin. You have that cycle. I want to emphasize that a bit. Right, if I just skip forward very quickly. Oh, I've skipped John. Eternal life will perish in John 3.16. Will not see life in the end of John 3 and 1 John 5. Right, here we go. 2 Thessalonians 1.11. Now this one is I just really want to touch on because it's where we have to be really careful with our translations. I don't want to denounce translations. I think NIV, ESV, I am reliant on these translations because I don't know Greek. But I am aware that there is some issue, especially when it comes to this, depending on, depending on your view will 
actually decide how you read this verse, which is really fascinating and one I need to be careful of because I have landed on a side and I need to be careful that I'm not interpreting scripture because of my view. But NIV and ESV say the destruction is away from or shut out from the presence of the Lord. There's a Greek word in there where it says shut out from. There's only one Greek word used, apo. And apo everywhere else is translated from. So I'm just going to really hold up two views. If you hold to eternal torment, you would translate this as separation from God. You are shut out from the presence of God. If you are in a conditional immortality camp, you will say eternal destruction from the presence of God, meaning it's the presence of God that destroys. And I'm going to give a little hint that makes sense of the Old Testament where God says, I will consume you, you are a stubborn people. makes sense of Hebrews, if you've read Hebrews, consuming fire, our God is a consuming fire. Whereas over here, shut out from the presence of God, shut away from the presence of God, Separation isn't really in view at all in the Old Testament. You're cut off because you're dead. That's that's that CR camp. Okay, so there's there's a, that is a bit of a bombshell. I'm gonna <laughs> keep going with that. Which one? In hell. Yes, but I would yeah. That is, it is, I have heard people say that hell is God removed completely. But we have verses like Psalms 139 where say God is, God is there. And we think the new creation is going to be God's domain. He's going to dwell with his people. Is he going to have a little pocket of, of evil and hell left there? That's a little bit of a question I will leave there. Um, I haven't remained neutral. I'm very sorry. Right, Revelation 14, uh, I'm just going to have to leave because I want your questions. I want to answer what you have. I've dropped enough bombshells in there. There are some passages in there that are fascinating. So 2 Peter connects Noah. The reason I said Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah is because 2 Peter talks about Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah as the destruction And he uses the phrase, Sodom and Gomorrah is the example of what will happen to the ungodly. And if you see Jude 7, Jude 7 uses eternal fire when referencing Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah isn't still burning. So that's where eternal can mean from from God. So the eternal fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah is burnt out. We don't still see smoke. But Jude 7 uses that phrase, eternal fire. Jesus uses the word eternal fire. What did he mean? That's the discussion. Tartarus, we're going to skip. Okay. I'm just going to skip through to Revelation 14, 11. Now, uh, what I really hope you get from this, Tim, can you go back one? I really hope that you see, if you see uh, anything about hell, any reference about hell, and they leave one verse and say, this is what it says, I hope you go away from this going, nah, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to see what that verse really says in context. Because that is what we should be doing anyway. That is what we should be doing with, uh, and studying the Bible and figuring out what people are teaching is actually true. And when it comes to Revelation, the key thing that I've learned in doing all of this is Revelation self-interprets much of the time. It says... The incense is the prayers of the saints. Uh, it says, um, 
It's gone. There's a, it says a bunch of things where it is. Ah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. The lake of fire is the second death. It explains, and so if we know what death means, and that's the debate, actually, between these two camps, death is you return to dust. Well, second death means there ain't no coming back from that dust. If you hold to death being separation from God and ongoing torment, then second death is just more of ongoing torment. Okay, so that, those are the two views. Now, the reason I love uh, Revelation self-interpreting itself is Revelation 14.11. If you have any idea, this is one of the most misused verses when it comes to hell because it's not even talking about every unbeliever. It's not even talking very clearly about who is facing the wrath of God here. Uh, but it uses symbols of a cup of um, poured full strength. Now, you'll notice on the screen, I'm going to give you this presentation uh, because it, it compares things throughout the Bible with these references, cup, linking with destruction, etc., etc. But also, Revelation 18 talks all about the end of Babylon. Babylon will be no more. It will be no more, no more, no more, no more. All the way through Revelation 18. Revelation 19, verse 3 says... Hallelujah, Babylon is no more. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Babylon, the great evil, the great harlot, the thing that all civilizations become when they are so evil they must be destroyed. It will be no more. God is victorious. Hallelujah, it will be no more. And they use that phrase, the smoke goes up forever and ever. And I would argue, neutrally, (laughs) that that doesn't necessarily mean what we first think it means. Okay. Oh, I've got so much to say. Right, okay. Uh, let's go to the conclusion, then we'll go to Q&A. So I'm going to keep going to the good news. New Testament hope. Resurrection body. We get that. 1 Corinthians 15. Read 1 Corinthians 15. The end of death. Uh, eternal life is in Christ alone. Or perish. John 3.16. The reconciliation of all things in Colossians 1.20. All things will be reconciled to him. There will be a new creation. Again, that theme from Isaiah 25 and Isaiah 65. There will be no more death, no more pain, no more mourning. God will dwell with his people. It will be amazing. I am so looking forward to that. Uh, and notice it's a new creation where God will dwell with his people. Heaven comes to earth. We aren't looking forward to a kingdom up in the sky with harps and babies. We are looking forward to God redeeming all of creation and it will be wonderful, as it was made to be. The Garden of Eden again. The Tree of Life pops up again in Revelation 22. Oh, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be good. That's our hope. And death, evil, will be no more. So I say the good news of hell, that's, that's basically where destroy, contain, torment is questionable. You can leave that for debate. Or, I argue, this is, if you haven't realised, I'm over here on this camp. I don't think there's going to be any more death, any more pain, any more evil in the new creation. I don't think God is going to sustain sinners for eternity. I think he's just going to do what he does. His presence, his glory just destroys all sin. It will be no more and it will be glorious. We will rejoice in God's glory. We will know he is just. We will know he is merciful because instead of keeping them alive, he will end it. Because in the end, if someone rebels against the giver of life, what more can he do other than destroy them? So I think that is a better view of hell because then the glorious creation will be filled with people who want God 
want his presence, love him, have trusted in him, and those who have felt the deepest pain, the deepest suffering, the deepest persecution, have lost their life because of their faith, know that God is just. And if their persecutors turn to Christ, they know they'll be there as well, and they will know true forgiveness. But if they don't turn, they will have their death. And that is the good news of hell. So, I was a little bit longer than 50 minutes for that first bit. Um, Do we usually go for quarter two at the end of the evening? I'll give you a little minute to dance, turn around, talk to your neighbour, tell someone if there's a heretic at the front of church, and then uh, we'll have some questions in a moment. I do want to hear your questions. Um, I will answer them as best as I can. What I will say is, and I, I don't know if it came across, I am quite confident in my perspective, but I want to put it out there. I am still learning. I, there are people who know Greek, Hebrew better than me. I am not an expert. I've just read a lot. And so within that, if you have... Anything that contradicts what I've said, I want to hear it. Uh, Any evidence that contradicts what I've said, I want to hear it. Um, And you can also, I I think I put it at the end of the notes, if you want to engage in this conversation a little bit more, I I have two blogs, partly because I don't want to be talking about hell all the time, so I've contained it eternally (laughs) on one one blog, thehellproject.online, if that's your bag and you want to get stuck in. I've got a little YouTube channel that's very, it's a very baby YouTube channel at the moment. Um, This video will hopefully go on there. Um, If you don't want your question on there, do let me know and I'll make sure, just say it at the start of your question so I know to delete it as part of that. Um, But also, um, I was going to say one other thing. The other blog is more my personal blog. Um, It is personal. There's there's a whole load of stuff happening in, in my life and God is doing so many amazing, wonderful things, but also I do blog a little bit about what's happening in culture and a Christian response to that. So uh, I was very creative and called it a simple blog dot online. Um, yeah, so that's all there. So if you want to engage with this further than these Q&As, right, I'll stop talking. Who's got a question? Ooh. That could be a good sign. I don't know. Escaped about the nature, yep. about the nature of the beast. Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, an answer. Feel free. Feel free. Go. If if uh, go for it. We skip. You skip the whole section. Um, is there a brief? Oh, is there a brief answer to that, to section? that section? Right. The nature of the beast. Now, there isn't a brief answer. There is. Uh, let me go to the, to where I skipped over. The nature of the beast. I think it needs more study. I really do. I think people drop verses from Revelation and say, this is hell, because it says day or night, forever and ever. And, and when we're talking about the beast, some, you'll have different interpretations of if it's a system, if it's a being, if it's a bit of both, because sometimes that's what happens in Scripture when they look at events, there's more than one. Um, so the dragon was more. The reason I put that on there, 
just to make it clear, what, there's a dragon, is more an emphasis of we need more study. And, and so when someone, when you're reading a book and judgment comes up and they drop in Revelation 20, that should raise alarm bells. So could it be a caveat, I was going to say, to yeah. Oh, yeah. The beast is everyone to some people. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. Yeah. The moment we start going, this event in my life is the beast. We've got a bit of a problem of how we're reading scripture. Um, so I, that that was more just be really careful when we're reading this. It's symbolic. It's apocalyptic. That's there's lots of symbols. Most of things are interpreted themselves. Um, and just to highlight Revelation 20, I've read books where they emphasize that the that death and Hades are completely destroyed in the lake of fire. So they're okay with that. Death and Hades destroyed, no longer needed. But they skip verse 15. They, they've literally left it out. Verse 15 is where those not in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. Where if the lake of fire destroys death and Hades completely, is what's happening to those? And, and then they put on there, they're already interpreting the eternal torment. Bit. And so then, I mean, if you look up fire and hell, you get all sorts of wacky and horrendous, in my view, images we don't have from the Bible. They're from medieval art, which, again, I wouldn't look at uh, regarding hell. It's, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. Um, so we need to be really careful when we're looking at Revelation 20. Just on that note as well, the first bit is about whether your millennialism or whatever, it will work out in the end, millennialist. Um, in there is a bit where the enemies of God are consumed by fire. And I think that's quite interesting that he uses the word consume. We see that. I've skipped over Hebrews. Um, yeah, when, when we hear the word consumed, we should mean what it says. They are consumed. Um, yeah, is that helpful? Yeah. Sorry, yes. Yeah, this, this maybe doesn't cover this. Yeah, it shouldn't be asked here, but. Um, why are there so many different versions of Christian, Christianity? Because I've mm-hmm. come across Methodists, mm-hmm. um, evangelists, and. Um, it is a really good question. Why are. What's am I? I mean, yeah, uh, some would argue I'm in the wrong place, or yeah, uh, it's, it's a big can of worms. I'm not going to open it. Partly, I mean, you can see a little bit of tonight in his. I'm presenting two camps because we are wrestling with language and scripture, and there are certain things we can hold fast to like Jesus' death and resurrection and, and those core doctrines, those are important and we must hold tight to those, but some people add other doctrines and say they are core. So actually in the States, I know people that have lost their job because they hold to conditional immortality. They can't work in a church, they have to leave a church, they have to... And I, I'm so grateful that I am in a church that is allowing us to explore... Scripture, and I'm so grateful to be here tonight and not be shot. <laughs> like there, there are people that will hold what hell is so tightly, they will write it on a statement of faith, put it on their website, and if you don't hold to that, you're not allowed in there. So unfortunately, it's kind of what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. They've put all these laws up so that you don't tread on the actual laws. 
and we end up in a mess. The gospel is Christ, Christ crucified, and he's given us life. What happens after that? I would believe that God came to you, and then I met, I told the Derek, I went to the new scientist there, and she's got a the sky at night, and I thought, oh, she couldn't possibly believe in God, and I said, I have to ask her a question, she said, um, well, actually, I do, I'm, you know, I'm a fully grown Christian, and she said something, how, how can something come from nothing? Well, can I stop you there? I'm going to stop you there. You've got some amazing questions, but if we can stick to the topic tonight. Yeah, they are, I'm quite happy to chat through those, but we'll, we'll try and stay on this. Thank you, though. Yeah. Hi. Uh, yeah, um, I guess in our society, we, um, if someone does something bad depending on what they do, they receive a longer sentence. Do you believe that the amount of evil someone has done, will God judge them more harshly or not? Um, Like a lot of things I've said tonight, it's debated. Uh, I know people that hold to conditional immortality and they would say no. I know people that hold to conditional immortality and say yes, because you've got parables where it sounds like someone is beaten a few times and someone is beaten a lot of time, uh, less times. What I will say is that discussion makes more sense. So I'm, this, when I'm using my left hand, that's the conditional immortality camp. I'll just put it there. <laughs> when I'm using my right hand, that's eternal torment camp. It makes more sense when you're talking about a finite amount of time to have more or less of a duration of punishment. When you start working in infinities and eternal torment, one beating a day for eternity turns into the same as ten beatings a day for eternity. Mathematically speaking, it becomes a bit of a nonsensical idea of degrees of... Now, a lot of people don't see that. Um, but if you've got any idea of mathematics and the concept of infinity, you know that it's basically made up. <laughs> Just joking. Uh, and so the, you, you have these people wrestling with degrees of torment when it basically turns into infinite. And I don't think it makes that much sense here, uh, personally. I will emphasize the personally. People will debate that. Um, I don't think it plays as important a part in our understanding of life or death in the end. That's what the gospel is. And and one thing I will say about uh, being in this camp over here is when I preach and the topic of hell comes up, I will only use the biblical language of death, life, fire, destruction, consume, perish, no more, ash got a lot of words here that seem to be no more they're all biblical words but over here I will never use eternal conscious torment because I don't see it in the Bible I just want to ask um, I'm sort of getting an idea there's an interpretation that concepts like forever and ever and and, um, eternal um, are kind of um, metaphors for for, in, um, for the intensity of something rather than the duration. I think you referred to that at the beginning. Can you just explain yeah, that? Yeah, so I don't wrestle with the definition of eternal and I want to really make that clear because sometimes when I'm presenting really strongly the case that I hold, 
it will be interpreted that I'm arguing for a punishment that's not eternal. I believe eternal life is an ongoing duration which has an extra quality to it because we are in the presence of God. And actually, this I've actually got a slide on here. If I go back to Hebrews... Um, Chris, can you, or someone, go back to Hebrew. There's a table that should pop up on the screen, and I realise it should be on your notes. But this was actually explaining what it means by eternal. There we go. That's the one. Um, so there's a lot of writing, but basically, the way we view eternal redemption is there is one act, Christ's cross, that has redeemed us for eternity, the moment in time has redeemed us for eternal, with an eternal consequence, so ongoing duration. Uh, same with judgment in Hebrews 6.2, eternal judgment. The judgment, God's judgment, will happen in a moment. It, the moment of judgment isn't going to be stretched out for eternity, but Hebrews uses eternal judgment. And so the judgment happens, the consequence is eternal. And then we get into eternal punishment, and so the argument I hold to is the moment after judgment is death. The consequence is eternal. It's a death you're not returning from. So our our first death is from this life. And 1 Corinthians uses the image of this body will be a seed planted in the ground and we will rise up imperishable if we're in Christ. And so that's our first death. The Revelation then uses the phrase second death. And I think that's what makes most sense over here where the moment of that second death has an eternal consequence that you will never enjoy life or eternal life. We are given life in a moment with an eternal consequence. Does that make sense? So, uh, no? So, yeah, so the, the only bit where I think eternal has just quality is when it comes to eternal fire, because that's what Jude 7, Jude references when it says the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was by eternal fire, and that will happen to the ungodly. It uses the phrase, it's an example of what will happen to the ungodly. Uh, And so the eternal fire, we don't see Sodom and Gomorrah still burning. And and so we see that that's a fire from God's judgment, and it, it consumed and destroyed so that's where the eternal quality from God comes in. But for all the other uses of eternal, I would say they have eternal in terms of duration, impact. Um, and just when it comes to punishment, just to be clear as well, I think they translated punishment correctly. I think if, you, if we were going to translate it into ter- eternal conscious punishing, that punishment is ongoing, we'd use punishing. Or, uh, I, don't, I don't think it quite makes much sense the word eternal punishment. Again, um, it is debated, so I don't want to produce this as a cold hard fact, um, but that's at the moment I'm trying to explain why I would say these two views are biblical, and I'll be wrestling with what that, what that looks like. Cool, I think we have time for one more question. You've spent the evening talking about hell. You've never mentioned about the devil. And he was sent into the pit for a thousand years in the end times. What is the pit? Yeah, it's 
That's a good question. Okay, so the reason I want to talk about the devil is because we see hell as always happening to humans. And so that I purposely didn't put the devil in. The reason being for that is it's a whole other conversation, and I obviously have, and, and this is why I've only scratched the surface, I really want to emphasize that. Um, so again, the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 25. Uh, we have hints at, um, I think it's Ezekiel 19, that it sounds, it sounds like there's a reference to, I think it's Tyre, which kind of sounds like an angelic being falling and being destroyed. Uh, there is Revelation, which talks about the devil in being tormented forever and ever in the presence of the Lamb. Now, I think before the Lamb is really important because it says the presence of the Lamb. And if you've got the idea that hell is separation from God, you've got a little bit of a problem with that. So, so what I would say in response isn't I have a direct answer, I honestly can say I don't because I'm hearing several views at the moment um, and I'm not quite sure which has the strongest perspective. And so there's a few views, even within conditional mortality camps, some would say, well actually because the devil and his angels are immortal, they all face eternal punishment, and so we call that partial immortality, that uh, humanity will be destroyed, but the devil and his angels will be tormented forever in the pit of fire. We've got some who would say actually there's not going to be any space in the new creation for the devil's angels, and it'll be destroyed completely. And then you've got the eternal conscious torment view, which is everyone in the pit forever. So those are the three views. Which is the most biblical? I think you'll find people arguing for quite a while on that one. I'm not going to fix that tonight. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Dale. We really appreciate you coming over. Thank you for having me. Phil and I discussed this at length many times on Journeys of the Thank you for listening, and I want to know what you think. Do get in touch. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, you can do that through uh, Twitter or my YouTube channel, but I also have the scripts and free resources and other studies that I'm continuing to engage with at uh, thehellproject.online. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support the channel and uh, the show in any way, please do go into the description of this episode and you can find a PayPal link. Otherwise, I do this all for free and I hope you found it helpful. God bless you. See you later.